The Four Horsemen. What you have here is the Four Horsemen, united, live and exciting color. Um, not those Four Horsemen. These Four Horsemen discuss theology from different viewpoints, different perspectives, as we show people how to have discussions without turning into a keyboard warrior. Are you stupid? Now, here's the Four Horsemen. Welcome to the October 4th, 2021 edition of the Four Horsemen podcast. I'm Ben Heisey, lead pastor of Pole Creek Baptist Church in Candler, North Carolina, and I will be your host today. Joining with me is a group of gentlemen and scholars and of whom me, there is no comparison. <laughs> Adam Black, lead pastor of Westwood Baptist Church in Asheville, North Carolina. Derek McCarson, lead pastor of Liberty Baptist Church in Candler, North Carolina, and the... Ben Kerfman, family pastor of Barberville Baptist Church in Waynesville, North Carolina. So guys, uh, today I'd like to talk about uh, a few things in the local church life, some things I think that will affect every church and ultimately the universal church worldwide. But it's in this day and age, of course, there's no disputing that Christianity in America is struggling. Uh, would you guys agree to that? 110%. So, you know, we're hearing of church after church who are shutting down, shutting their doors. Um, the question that we all have to ask, of course, as pastors in particular, is why? You know, why are churches losing their effectiveness in this American culture of 2021? Um, you know, and as I was thinking through this, you know, is it an issue of evangelism? Uh, is it an issue of discipleship? Is it an issue of assimilating newcomers into the life of the church? Um, could be all three, could be one of the three. Um, that's what we're going to talk about today. So let's start with evangelism. Um, how do you guys think we are measuring up in winning the lost today? Very poorly, I think. Mm -hmm. I think that I know with our church, evangelism is the biggest struggle for people. Um, we do surveys every year, and we ask how many people have you had spiritual conversations with, gospel-centered conversations with, and the number's fairly low. Uh, and then when you ask the question why, it's, well, I don't know what to say, I don't know what to do, I don't, you know. So I think evangelism is a, is a major um, problem in our church, and I have to believe that um, we've been so um, revivalism, uh, the event-driven uh, type evangelism where the idea is if I can get them in the church building, I've done evangelism, you mm -hmm. know, where that's not truly what evangelism is. And I mean, you think of the Billy Graham crusades, you look at uh, even, like I said, the revivals that churches used to have, that was the whole mm -hmm. emphasis, which revive is to revive some, you know, it's not right. for the lost technically, mm -hmm. you know, by, by definition, but, but yeah, evangelism's a, a massive hole, I think, in most churches. And, and defining what evangelism actually is, I think, is is a key. Yes, sir. I agree. I think you're definitely onto something there. Looking at the model of the church, are we attractional or are we missional? You know, and we can have that debate, and we have had that on previous <laughs> podcasts before. Um, but I think, uh, as of recent, if you want to just talk about 2020 and and thereafter. Um, I think COVID has been a huge killer of, of church and especially um, passion for the lost evangelism because we've so many churches are still shut down. I've heard of churches that have just now had their first service mm. um, after being shut down for so long. So one prong of that answer, you know, why are they struggling? Well, a lot of churches are doing it to themselves. Right. Um, they're, they're, they've been shut down. They've been living in fear for so long. And if there was ever a time when the church needed to be vibrant and needed to be meeting and there needed to be um, corporate worship, it's, it's now when Amen. the culture's unhinged, the ground's unstable beneath our feet, and it seems like everything's falling apart. Um, so I think as of recent, that's been a big a big one, and every church has had to deal with that. Um, but I also would say that I'll go back to a statement uh, from good old Johnny Tiller, whom we have all had the, the privilege of uh, hearing him and learning after him. He always said that the greatest mission field in, in the world was on the pews of the Baptist church. Mm -hmm. So one reason why evangelism is such a problem is, and I know Ben touched on that last week too, you have a lot of lost people uh, sitting on the church pews week in and week out who um, they may know the gospel intellectually, but they haven't truly had uh, a born-again experience. And 
uh, you and you guys can attest, if you've truly met the Lord, uh, you're going to be excited to share your faith, have those spiritual conversations, and, and sow the seed. So I think when you look at that in the church, you have um, wheat among the tares or tares among the wheat, however you want to look at it, um, people who don't share their faith because how can you share what you don't have? Mm-hmm, you know right. what I'm saying? It's true. Uh, so there's a model issue, there's real-world circumstances, and then there's the spiritual um, problem within the church um, with evangelism. Because if you look at tools, man, we've got the tools for That's spiritual true. laws, uh, evangelism explosion, mm-hmm. um, way of the master, faith outline. I mean, you name it. There's so many ways to disciple people into sharing the gospel. Um, so we just don't do a good job of taking that out into the world in a, in a, in a real way that's going to impact people's lives. So I'll, uh, I'll throw a wrench in. So I think uh, I would definitely agree with what both of you guys said. Um, I do think that evangelism is a problem. I do think that um, we don't have enough people sharing the gospel or uh, a lot of the systemic issues, like what you said, Adam, you know, I'm going to get them to come to church so the professional can convince them to be saved because he'll use the right words, and that's just bad theology of how salvation works. But mm-hmm. but that's a common thing you know, that people have. Of, uh, somehow we're, we as preachers are going to be more able to lead somebody to Christ than the Holy Spirit will. But, um, you know, and then it, COVID obviously did affect things. It, it A lot of churches shut down what little evangelism they were doing, and they shut that down. But I think, I think another factor that I don't hear people talking about is... Um, I think part of the problem is that we have unrealistic expectations of the fruit of evangelism to begin with. Hmm. So for instance, uh, the metrics that we use to measure success in evangelism are metrics that were developed during the church growth movement, which is largely unconverted people coming to church. Mm-hmm. So like so like we all admitted like the problem is there's a lot of people sharing the gospel that aren't converted because they took a class on one of these evangelistic tools and so they're sharing the, they're sharing a saving gospel with an unbeliever who's being saved but they're not being saved by the gospel that they're sharing. You know if you um, think about those numbers too if you just use Jesus numbers in the parable of the sower. Mm-hmm. The problem, 25%. Right, 25%. The problem wasn't with the seed, the problem was with the soil right. always. And if you look at that, just one-fourth of what went into the ground. So, yeah, so I, I told our church, I looked at demographics a few years ago. Within five miles of our church, if we only targeted families that have children and we shared the gospel with them and we had a 90% failure rate, we would run out of room on Sunday morning mm-hmm. with a 90% failure rate. Now, so so then why do we not have the room? Well, part of it could be on our end. Of we, uh, we just need to be sharing the gospel more. You know, if you want to see more fruit, sow more seed. Because mm-hmm. you don't know what ground it's going to land on. The that's whole, right. well, we'll just tail it up and make it work. Yeah, Jesus didn't say that. That's not in the parable. <laughs> like, we made that up. Um, but if you want to see more fruit, sow more seed. I mean, that's that's basically the principle there. But I think the other issue is, again, is, is how do we measure success? And the way that we've been trained over the last, 40, 50 years to measure success is can, can actual conversions, you know, which can which we measure with things like a sinner's prayer or baptism or something like that. There is no measurement for the person that considers Christ for 10 years and at some point in that process actually has faith and becomes a believer. There's no way to measure that person um, because they're not even totally sure at what point. They just know that they've been born again. And I'm finding more and more that for a lot of people it is that way. You know, for some of us, and I mean, I don't know that we've all shared our testimonies, but I'm sure we all have had different experiences of how we came to Christ. Some people, it is a really dramatic transformation. Other people, it's just a long process of considering scripture and considering these things. And at some point, you know, like I use the illustration, like C.S. Lewis talks about how um, he went uh, for a ride in a motorcycle sidecar with his brother through the woods. And when he left, he was an atheist. And when they got to where they were going, he was a Christian. And somewhere on that motorcycle ride, it the Holy Spirit regenerated him mm-hmm. with what he already knew, but he hadn't actually believed it. And I think it's that way for a lot of people. So so I, I guess what I want to say is 
is the church's effectiveness dependent on our obedience to go and do that? Yes, there, there, there is an element there. Mm-hmm. But I think another element is, is we're disappointed when God doesn't meet our expectations of what we think He would be doing if we were doing what we were supposed to be doing. Right. So we, we assume, no, nah, we, we assume, we, yeah, we are, we are Molinists. God's not, but we are. Um, we, so we, we assume that. If we were doing everything that we were supposed to be doing, if all of our church mm-hmm. members were out there sharing the gospel on a daily basis, we assumed that there would be revival and that people would be converted. But there's no promise of that in Scripture that that will happen. There is promise that some people will be saved mm-hmm. by mm-hmm. hearing the gospel. I mean, obviously, we don't believe our whole area is reached or we wouldn't. Jesus would have come back already. Right. So we believe that there are people out there that are going to be saved. But but what if what if the maximum potential of effectiveness for Pole Creek is for 10 people in Candler to be saved between now and the time Jesus comes back. Right. What if that's it? I hope, it's only 10 I hope people. that means he's coming back tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, and you know what I'm saying? Like, I mean, obviously like we don't want yeah. that, but, but I'm saying if it's, if it really is up to God mm-hmm. and he's decided how he's going to use that gospel that goes out, mm-hmm. then we, we can't, the measure of success is, is obedience and not the results of the obedience. Right. So let me, yeah. let me rip off right. of that just a little bit. And, we all like to point fingers at the culture and, and try and blame things on the culture. But mm-hmm. I've heard Ken Ham from Answers in Genesis give this illustration. And I think we could all at least agree with it to some extent in that um, it's a whole lot harder to do evangelism today than it was in the heyday of Billy Graham. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. Just because of the cultural barriers that are in the way, Right. So he gives this illustration um, between Acts 2 and Acts 17. I don't know if you've heard him give this, but it's it's really telling. It's, it's, it's pretty good. So in Acts 2, you've got Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost. Mm-hmm. But he's preaching to um, a group of Jews who are thoroughly informed of the biblical text. They have the underpinnings of the Old Testament, the, un- the theological understanding. So it's very easy for him to preach that message in Acts 2 and connect the dots of Messianic prophecy and sure. point to Jesus and, and then to have that great explosion of uh, 3,000 souls on mm-hmm. the day of Pentecost. Okay, contrast that with Paul in Acts 17 when he goes to the top of Mars Hill there in Athens to meet among the intellectuals as they're discussing the philosophy, and he says, hey, I'm going to preach to you about the uh, unknown God. I was walking around your city. I saw the idols. And then when you get to the conclusion of that, after Paul preaches his message, it said that uh, some scoffed. Um, some said, we'd like to hear you later on this. And then some believed. So mm-hmm. there were some who made a decision, some who derided, and some who delayed. Right. And I think if you, you look... Uh, there you go. Brother Dennis would be uh, <laughs> proud of that one. But you could look at those two cultures and say, okay, both guys were faithful. Mm-hmm. They both preached the word. Oh, yeah. But the, you have to say that the determining factor was the difference between preaching to people who had a biblical worldview in Jerusalem versus preaching to total pagans in Athens who had no biblical worldview. James, James, James White, that. actually, not the main Calvinist guy, the other James White, <laughs> he, um, he used that same thing, and he talked, okay. all, he talked about um, what you're talking about he called it pre-evangelism. Right. That our people aren't prepared with pre-evangelism. Right. Because he said, like, if if a 10 is coming to know Christ, right, and zero is far from God, he said mm-hmm. culture, you know, up until about 10 years ago was in that 6 to 10 range. Mm-hmm. Christian nation, Christian people. They knew some of the Bible. They knew some of the story. They knew Jesus. But now it's like we're in a post-Christian nation, mm-hmm. so we're in that zero to five range. So people don't know how to observe like Paul did. You know, mm-hmm. here's what your poet said. Here's what, you know, the, people can't connect where people are today because if I can't just read Scripture to them and they get saved, well, they get stuck because I was that guy. Mm-hmm. You know, right. my roommate was an atheist, and I just thought if I read John three sixteen, bam, it, it could happen. No, God could have used that, but mm-hmm. he was like, I don't believe that. And I'm like, right. Here's, so we can fight about this. So we haven't the, been able to have a good expectation. I totally disagree with yeah. what you both say. And, and you, All right, go ahead. And you may be on the same line that I was thinking. Go ahead, Ben. Yeah. I, I think that the Holy Spirit saves people through the proclamation of the word alone. And so, and I'm for apologetics and all that kind of stuff. I'm also presuppositional. I know you're not. Mm-mm. And so that's that's a difference that we have. But 
uh, I think the difference between what Peter preached in Acts 2 and what Paul preached in Acts 17 is completely of uh, uh, up to the way that the Holy Spirit used those messages in the crowd and not the methodology that they used. Now, I, th I think methodology has its place, but when it comes to conversion, I think methodology mm -hmm. uh, is uh, irrelevant. Uh, I, I think I think that you could have quoted John three sixteen to your atheist roommate, and he could have been saved just by hearing that. If that was how the Holy Spirit had had how the Holy Spirit had decided to give him the new birth. Well, think about this. You know, we talked about Peter the day of Pentecost. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if we use this system of people, you know, zero to ten, some people are at a seven, some people are at a four, whatever it may be. You think, okay, so Peter was preaching to a group of Jews who would have had that traditional Jewish upbringing, and they would have known the the Old Testament, the Torah. They would have they would have been raised in uh, learning those stories. But then we think about Stephen. So Stephen preached the same message, really, that Peter preached. Who was Stephen preaching to? Jews. Jeez. So you had two different results, both groups of whom would have grown up in that uh, that learning. So that would be my contradiction right. to that system. So and, the scale you were talking about, right? right? Like right. people would say this person's like on a 7 to 10. Right. That That's a scale of how much intellectual knowledge they have about the gospel. Sure, sure. As, as, does that as relate a good to Calvinist, conversion? I would say yeah. the scale is everybody's a negative 5 and has no hope <laughs> of believing in God yeah. at all. And they go from yeah. a negative 5 to a positive 10. Yeah completely by the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit and not in and of themselves. Right. I, well, I would agree now, with that. Now, God uses yeah. the means of mm -hmm. things like apologetics and quoting Scripture and doing a lot mm -hmm. to do that, but the actual work that's done is not the person that does it. Well, because we have the most solid apologetic available of any worldview in Christianity. I mean, we have the historical backing. We have uh, factual, logical. All the above is working in our favor. So if all we need to do is convince someone, we can do that intellectually. You can convince anyone. It, unless their mind is darkened. Well, that's true. That's true. <laughs> you know, if it's purely in an intellectual right. situation, then we can do that. But I think, you know, regardless of their background, I think, you know, if you go to a, an untouched tribe in Africa, who's never even yeah, I was heard getting of ready to bring go, up, go ahead, Derek. Let I was me, getting ready to that. bring up like missions. Okay. Uh -huh. So look at somebody like Adoniram uh -huh. Judson. Okay. Who went from the United States, one of the first missionaries from the United States to overseas, went mm -hmm. to Burma, and he labors for seven years before he ever sees one convert. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, how, how many of us would continue to labor, you know, past year two or three? Mm -hmm. And yet, when you look at all that he suffered in his life, if, by the way, if you've never read a biography of him, you need to. You'll feel about like that big, spiritual oh, yeah. gnat. <laughs> this guy was, uh, he, he was something else. But you think about, I'm, I, I'm not pointing directly to the fact that, you know, culture determines everything. But I think it does play a, a part in it. When you look at somebody like Adoniram Judson, who goes into a country that's never heard the name of Jesus, mm -hmm. and he has to labor seven years to get one soul right? versus and that's Billy Graham preaching in a post-World War II world where the gospel is in the Western world is pretty prevalent. I mean, mm -hmm. he, 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 I would say... Won't say his life was easier, but he had to, to use a farming term. He had an easier row to hoe than somebody like Adoniram Judson. So I'm I'm just saying that culture does matter. If you're going in the deep dark jungles somewhere mm -hmm. where they still got a bone through their nose and they're cannibals, you know that's so you're saying, gonna be different. Are you saying that culture but, matters in this in in the sense in the sense of our responsibility? But well, we, not that, only does we, your, we not have only, more work to do. Yes, you do have more work to do. So you I would agree with that. But I would say that God's work is the same, has well, always sure. been the I same. sure. I mean, God can save anybody. We might have to work a little harder. But, but yeah. what I'm saying is that when you're talking about our expectations of, you know, like you mentioned right. in the, your first comment. We're not going to see like Billy Graham. No, and I think we need to adjust that in the world that we're living because so many of our Christians are still living in that mentality. And hello, this is a post-Christian world, mm -hmm. as Adam mentioned, mm -hmm. and we need to adjust our expectations and therefore adjust our methodology as well to how we're going to reach folks. But I think we adjust it based on the setting. And here's what I mean by that. Greg Laurie and them just did that big harvest deal out in California. Mm -hmm. Okay. I forgot the thousands of people who claim to make professions of faith. Right. So, But the setting was they came to hear 
preaching, right? Mm-hmm. It's the same with uh, Peter at uh, Pentecost. Mm-hmm. Now we're not going to say that they that's the same scenario, but they weren't hostile at that point, mm-hmm. right? They they True. they knew scripture. Stephen, True. they were hostile. Mm-hmm. The setting mattered. Right. Well, it's like I tell people like John MacArthur. If John MacArthur was in Asheville, his church would have like 300 people in it. Oh, absolutely. So he has thousands of people. And some of that is context, right? Yeah, absolutely. And so then how do you measure success? Like is success, you know, can, can the guy with 20 people in his church be successful? Yeah. Yeah. You know, and because and, 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 mm-hmm. I, I hear this all the time with Baptists of like, you know, uh, we're just not baptizing enough people. We're not doing whatever. Maybe the reason why we're not baptizing people is because we stopped baptizing false converts all the time. Right. right. So I would rather I would rather baptize one person a year that is has truly been born again. Yeah. Than manufacture something to baptize ten people and 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 get a hand clap of praise for the church at some association meeting or something. So, but Adam, you pointed out something. The the big crusade. Mm-hmm. It still can work. Absolutely. It did just this week. Right. Yeah. That I mean just as going and cold calling it and knocking on somebody's door and saying, Hey, mm-hmm. you know, I'm here from such and such church. How can I pray for you? That may also work. But one thing we have to uh, always precede our evangelism with is lots of prayer, realizing that this is a spiritual warfare. Right. And that really uh we need to be praying for the Holy Spirit to go ahead of us and to lead us and guide us into those divine appointments because really He's the one that does the saving. He's the one that blesses the obedience. Did you listen to my right. message yesterday? That's exactly what I preached. But but even <laughs> but, in the Bible. But even in that context, but even in that context, like you were talking about yeah. knocking on doors. Yeah. It would be easier for you to go knock on doors here than in West Ashville. Sure. Right. Right. So that's, that's what, what I'm, I'm saying. saying. Your context, your context your, and your culture matters. It does. Methodology matters. To say that it but ultimately doesn't. you're right. right. Holy Spirit does the saving, mm-hmm. and that's so, the word. The, so the, me- the, the method may be different, right? Yeah. You, can, you contextualize the method, mm-hmm. but the mechanism of salvation is not different. Like, people are only saved because the Holy Spirit regenerates them sure. through the proclamation of the word, right. not through, you know, well, I tried four spiritual laws on this person last time. Let's give three circles a try and see how that does. But I think that's, you see what I mean? Mm-hmm. But I think that's saying the same thing. To say, and here's what I mean, like, Paul... Would you say that he preached the word? Yes. But he didn't quote any scripture. He quoted their poets. He quoted their yeah. poets. That's what I'm saying. So the circles and the, the spirit, you know, that type of thing is, mm-hmm. to me, I would consider the word. What Paul did at Mars Hill was the word. If he would have quoted scripture to the Greeks, they would have been like, what? Right. Well, his what sermon this? was scripture. It just wasn't written down. Yet, right. So. It was paraphrased. <laughs> Well, I mean, would you would he you say would he you was guys... preaching under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? Oh Otherwise, yeah, no it doubt. Wouldn't have been recorded Correct. in scripture. But I'm saying yeah. the circles and that type of thing is the same. I I see it as the same. Yeah, but I mean, Which... when you look at all the sermons and acts, like from Peter and all those guys, they're all preaching Jesus out of the Old Testament because that's what they had, mm-hmm. right? And so, I, I I don't know. I'm not against somebody necessarily using like some kind of tool or something like that. Romans Road, but I think it always works. <laughs> yeah, but but I but I think I think the problem is is that you know, and not for us, right? As pastors, as theologians, we ask different questions and think about things differently than the average person in the pew does. But the average person in the pew, I would guess, if we were to go and survey people on evangelism and ask them. They honestly believe that the tool that they use and the specific words that they use make the difference between whether a person's converted or not, and they think that they're going to fail at it, which is why they don't do evangelism. And I think the solution to that is proclaiming the sovereignty of God of, listen, whatever tool or tract or knocking on doors, whatever methodology you're using, if you're preaching sin and repentance and faith— you're going to do like like the Holy Spirit told Paul. There are people that I have appointed people unto salvation in this city that you're going to. Mm-hmm. There are some people who are going to be saved. Mm-hmm. You don't know who they are. You preach to everybody. Right. Let him worry about that. But if somebody gets saved, it's not because of you and you're preaching and you use this tool or didn't use this tool or you said the right thing or didn't say the right thing. That has no bearing on that person's salvation. Right. So would they be saved if they didn't go? Yes by whoever God had decided for them to be saved by. <laughs> whoever, so all the whoever possibilities. Had, all the possibilities. Whoever he had decreed to evangelize. Every possibility, right. Well, yeah. well, Molinism. Well, let's throw this scenario out. So maybe you have a group from your church or you, 
you as a pastor are leading a group from your church and you're doing evangelism and whether it's at the outlet mall or you're knocking on doors or it's a cult, anything, you know, that happens there, um, what is the next step? So they accept Christ. They say, yes, I, I believe what you're saying and I trust Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins. What's next? What's that next step? So my my advice usually when dealing with new converts is we need to do a public profession of faith mm -hmm. and we need to do um, some discipleship, make sure That's you good. understand the decision that you've made. Mm -hmm. And then if that checks out, then we move to the next step, which would be baptism. That's good. And those would be the, the most steps. immediate steps that I would, I would take. Okay. Anyone else? I, basically, we would integrate them into the church. Like, mm -hmm. so for instance, uh, two weeks from now, we're going to be doing some street ministry at the Apple Festival. If we had somebody at that time, they read a track or they have a conversation and says, yeah, I, I believe this. Because step number one is you need to show up to church on Sunday. Right. Show up to church on Sunday. We want to get you in a Sunday school class where you can start getting trained. We want to get you in a group where you can build relationships with people and start being discipled. Mm -hmm. And we're going to let that that go on for a while to, to see is this just an emotional decision that this person made or as best as we can ascertain, mm -hmm. has this person actually been born again or not? Is there evidence of regeneration in their life? And as we're watching that process and building that relationship with them, then the conversation of baptism comes up. Of, right. Hey, if you're really serious about doing this, if you're really serious, you need to be baptized, which in my opinion also is simultaneous with church membership mm -hmm. and not separate. So sure. you're baptized into a local church of people who are witnessing that profession of faith and holding you accountable to living for Christ like you said you would have. Right. And then and then once they're a member in there, they come under the pastoral care of the pastor's and deacons and that kind of stuff and, and trying to kind of get them fully integrated so that they, it's basically like an incubator, you mm -hmm. know, they're this little, little egg and you're just trying to keep it warm and, and offer protection and offer nutrition and that kind of thing so that it can grow into what it needs to be. But yeah, that would be the next step in two nice. weeks. If somebody, if somebody said, Hey, I, you know, I want to receive Christ or I, I believe the gospel, mm -hmm. I believe what you're telling me. Step number one is it's Saturday, Sunday's tomorrow. Like you need to be in church. Right. That's like, good. we'll take it from there. But like, if you think you're going to pray a prayer here and then you're just going to go on your way doing whatever, that's that's not what God's calling you to. That's good. Yeah. That's good. So when I said public profession of faith, that's what I meant too. Like you need to come and be part of church and yeah, don't be ashamed of the gospel. That's good. Yeah. yeah. That's good. One of the things, wholeheartedly, the only thing I would add is <clears throat> I had a church plant coach who talked about this. Is he he talked a lot about when people come to know Christ, they're on fire. And that churches try to put the fire out. You know, they try to put the fire, you know, well, you've got to go through these courses and you got to go through these steps. And there is, there, obviously, uh, there there is steps. But I think sometimes we can get, we, we try to squash their fire, you mm -hmm. know, slow it. I want to go tell my family. I want to go tell my friends. I want to go, no, slow down. You know, you've got to go get your degree before you can evangelize. And, yeah. you know, but, and again, you work with them. Right. But he always talks, and I've seen it before, is you just don't want to squash the fire. Right. So basically, I mean, Jesus did not stop the woman at the well from no. going and telling her family. That's a great And point. that was literally immediately after immediately. she was converted. Yeah. And, and it goes back to the evangelism piece that I think, and I've tried to teach our church this, and, and, and it's funny because some people really struggle with this. You know, in Acts 1-8, you know, be my witnesses. Mm -hmm. The simple question that I ask our people, how has Jesus changed your life? How has, you know, Jesus becoming the Lord of your life changed your life? Right. Because I don't care, especially in this culture, if I go to somebody and I, I talk about how Jesus has changed my life, they usually aren't going to, you know, well, you're, you know, that's wrong or whatever. They'll say, okay, that's good for you. But if your if your life has been transformed, like the woman at the well, she takes off takes off running. They're like, wait a minute, this woman has changed. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's simply because Jesus has changed my life. Amen. But if we get into this, and that's where apologetics and the the different Romans roads and the scripted stuff that we can get ourselves into, just how has Jesus changed your life? Right. That's the story to tell. Right. right? So what? So what do you? Because the Mormons do that. Right. right, they'll tell the you in the bosom. Yeah, they'll tell they'll tell you about that of how they've been transformed by Jesus. So how is what Which we do Jesus? different? 
Right, yeah. right. But what I'm saying, brother what, what I'm saying is, is I don't, I don't think a, a purely testimony approach, right, is going to be as effective. Not that we right. don't have a testimony. Obviously, we should, of course. But yeah. what I'm saying is, is, is I personally know Mormons that will, that will tell you, yeah. my life was totally changed by Jesus Christ, and right. and when I encountered Him, you know, uh, now I stopped doing this, and and I'm living for Him, and I'm doing this, and I'm doing that. And that's how they're winning people because right. you can't invalidate their personal experience. And right. so if it's my personal experience versus their personal experience, right. we're kind of at an impasse. You know? I think so. But I also, again, it goes back to, I don't want to squash their fire. Like I have a story to tell. I mean, no matter what it is, I mean, the Mormons, okay. I don't want to say, well, we got to, you know, let's get the doctrinal district. I, I, just how has Jesus changed your life? I remember Terry and I went to hear, um, can't think of his name now. He's a New Testament scholar, wrote all sorts of books. Um, Schreiner? No, I don't remember. Anyway, so we go, and he, he talks about textual criticism and all that stuff. And at the end, it was a Q&A session. And um, people had a lot of questions. There was an atheist there that was trying to drill him, and he, and he did a very good job. But one guy stands up. He goes, I got one question. How has Jesus changed your life? And that was the hardest question he heard all night. He didn't know how to answer it. And I'm like, so I think we can get into the intellectual side so much, and right. don't don't get me wrong, that's clearly a part of it. Mm -hmm. um, but we can get so much wrapped up into the doctrine and the intellectual that we we miss the. Right. the I don't know what you would call. So it's it. not an either or; it's a both. Right. Bingo! Right? You got to exactly have, always the scriptures, right? Carry them with you and, and use them in your um, in your planting of seeds. But uh, right. but also backing that up with the experience of Christ in your own life. Mm -hmm. You got to have both of them. Yep. Right. Um, because you can't disconnect the, the, the head and the heart, right. right? The, Hey, let me tell you what Jesus did in my life. That's the emotional connection you're going to have with mm -hmm. somebody. Yeah. Right. The intellectual part is going to be them understanding the head part, you know, right. the gospel, which is what hey, you're saying. Who is this Jesus? Like, exactly. who, who right. are you talking about? And the yeah. intellectual side is what comes with time and discipleship. Yeah, right. sure. You know, and, um, Absolutely. Well, and you know, the thing about the Bible is it's so applicable to life. And there's also some pragmatic aspects of discipleship, you know, and arguably the next step in the discipleship process, according to scripture, is baptism. But what I'm hearing you guys say is maybe some more uh, uh, salvation and then education and then baptism. That would be a good uh, episode topic. So um, I can tell you from my experience yeah. that you, it's good to have at least two or three follow-up conversations to okay. make sure that that person understands what they are doing. So you're not in, you're not in, I guess interested spontaneous in spontaneous baptism. Is someone's born again and then you baptism baptize them immediately after? That happened in one verse in the Bible, so we should base our whole Baptist doctrine off of it. I'm not saying that's a that's a there's it's not a one size fits all. Right. I guess is what I'm saying, but right. in my experience, it's I think it's good and wise to have a couple of follow up conversations to make sure that because people can come forward and pray a prayer for all different kinds of reasons, right? That are not Holy Spirit conviction reasons, sure, right? Sure. Especially young people, teenagers, they don't really, you know. <laughs> I'm coming forward with my friend. I got I baptized get, twice, so I, I get yeah. you know, or um, <laughs> they don't they don't understand the gospel. They're responding to some kind of felt need in their life. Right. You know, I need God. Is, I need God to answer this right. prayer. And but would you say that's yeah. for us to determine, or and that's what I was getting ready to ask. Right. And we're just hearing how we discuss. Do you do each one of you guys? How do I say this properly? Do you guys push against the salvation? Like to, I ask questions, to, and I do too. But do you go into it thinking they're not really saved? I mean, I don't put barriers up to be ugly or like you know be antagonistic or anything. But I'm going to ask some deep, some deep questions. Right. Well, not not deep, but just like probing questions. To right, make sure they Pro understand. probing questions yeah. that are okay. What is sin? Right. Um, right. How do you know you're a sinner? Um, what happened on the cross? Yeah. You know, who do you say Jesus is? Those kind of basic things. And if they can't answer those questions, okay, we need to back up and we need to look right. at some scripture and you need to be discipled a little bit more. You may have made a genuine decision. You may in your heart want to trust in Christ, but you just don't really understand everything that goes along with it. Yeah. So you help them a little bit so that on the day that they're baptized, you know, it's not, they just not, uh, 
completely blank in their mind, like just going through what about emotions. Kids? What about kids? Because I've talked I'm to some pastors. I've, I've some I've I've heard of some pastors. Uh, one one guy in particular that he would not baptize his kids until they reached almost like yeah, teenage. Capitol Hill Baptist, you have to be eighteen, I think, to be baptized. So that's. What do y'all think about that? See, like my girls are seven. I've never and heard nine, of that. Yeah, seven and nine. Um, they said, you know, they professed their faith in Christ. We mm -hmm. had the conversation. Mm -hmm. um, they were clear. They knew what the gospel was. Um, they had trouble understanding what baptism was exactly. Right. But once I, that was more of a teaching thing in mm -hmm. the class, and they understood it. And mm -hmm. uh, I felt one hundred percent comfortable in baptism. Uh, yeah. yeah, I have no problem with that if they understand what they're doing. Jesus said to suffer the little children to come unto me. When I was seven, eight years old, I clearly understood what sin was. I knew I was a sinner, right. and I, I understood, you know, the, the gospel. Did I understand, you know, all the deep yeah. things of theology? Absolutely not. But I, I knew I was a sinner, and right. I knew that I really wanted Jesus because I didn't want to go to hell. Right. <laughs> well, you know, and I was playing kind of devil's advocate earlier, but at Pole Creek, you know, we have what's I'm a Christian now class. So if you're a child or even um, uh, intermediate age, then before you can be baptized at Pole Creek, you have to go through I'm a Christian Now class. And basically what that is is it's do you understand the gospel? Do you understand what Jesus did for you? Do you understand sin? And do you understand what baptism is? Because we don't want to get them confused that baptism is salvation. Yes, now that's a yeah. big one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's very, very important because you get that a lot from the uh, high church Catholic um, backgrounds and different things like that where they— they they make the two synonymous. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm a member of the Lutheran Church. I was christened, so therefore I'm saved. You know, yeah. it's kind of the the mm -hmm. issue there. So I think that all that is important. I do. Th I don't think the Bible gives um, very very specific details of exactly how we're to handle those things, um, because you do see baptism in succession directly after um, salvation in a lot of. Uh, verses, but however, you know, even in uh, what Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, um, you know, basically repent and be baptized. So, you know, but is there a time period between the two? And I, I think if we're going to be good stewards of these children, I think, yeah, I think that's okay. I don't think there's anything biblically that would say you have to baptize someone immediately after salvation, you know? So I think... Um, What's your take on that? I'm curious. On what, kids? Yeah. Um, we have done it. We've done it recently. Um, I think, I think in some ways it is a case on case, case by case basis. I, I, I believe I was converted at five and baptized at nine. Mm -hmm. So, and, and I, and I, I'm like you, Derek, you know, did I understand everything about theology? Well, certainly not, but I understood the gospel and I believed it, you know, at that time. So I do think that's a, a possibility. Um, we, we would be very cautious about like so for instance we baptized two uh two young girls recently one of them's a teenager one of them's like kind of a preteen age they've been talking about baptism for at least two years you know and and the probing questions and talking to mom and dad and what conversations are you having with them are you seeing fruit in their lives that kind of thing um they've also grown up in a christian home and been discipled and mom and dad are teaching the word at home and mm -hmm. so i mean they have that advantage, you know, of hearing the gospel on a more regular basis than some kids would hear. So I wouldn't totally rule it out at the same time. I mean, I, I've seen plenty of people, even in their teen years, that ha have an emotional moment or something like that, you know, and they get baptized, and then they end up getting baptized like five times before they're actually converted. Well, I say baptized. They get wet several times mm -hmm. before they're actually baptized. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think... I think that's it, that's something that has to be like carefully considered. I definitely get the argument for waiting until people are older or adults and can make decisions for themselves, but in my opinion, that's a little too extreme, you know, to do that to to wait until they have to be like sixteen or eighteen. It's almost like you got to pass like a test. Yeah, and I'm like, so here's where here's where I came. Um, my oldest son, uh, Asher, was baptized when he was nine or ten. And uh, in our church, the, uh, in order to be baptized, you do an interview with at least two of the elders to kind of ask those questions and okay. try to hear what's yeah. going on before they uh, bring you for baptism. So I had the, the other pastors uh, talk with him, and then I was in the water with him, but I had another pastor baptize him because of my view on church government, which we could go into in another episode. Um, but I did not baptize him. I was there and had uh, one of our other pastors baptize him. But... Um, 
in his case, it, it came to a conversation of, uh, this is also the reason why I advocate for taking communion weekly, because when the kids see that, the conversation started coming up. Well, if I'm a Christian, why do I not get to come and take the Lord's Supper with everybody else? I was like, well, are you a Christian? And so it, every week it was like prompting that question in his mind mm-hmm. of like, well, I should be able to do that because I'm a Christian. It's like, well, you haven't been baptized. You haven't publicly professed that you're a Christian, so you can't come to the table unless you've publicly professed that you're a Christian. Well, then I need to get baptized. And that's kind of how the conversation happened because in his mind, he was resolved that he was saved. He's like, I know that I'm born again. I know that I'm converted. So why can I not participate in the church? And um, that's where it became a conflict for me of... uh, if he, if he is not truly converted, then the sacraments or ordinances are, are not really effective for him. There's nothing magical about getting baptized or taking the Lord's Supper. If, however, he actually is converted, do I want to withhold the means of grace from him? Like, I wouldn't tell him, well, you're not allowed to listen to preaching because you're a kid and you're not saved. Or you're not allowed to sing hymns in, in service because you're you're not saved. But I'll say... You know, you're not allowed to come to the table because you're not saved. But then if he's saying that he is, well, then I wouldn't withhold some things from him and not others, um, which is the argument that Presbyterians make for paedo communion, too, that it's more consistent for them to baptize babies and give babies communion. Um, well, and therein is a need to have, I think, a, a couple training sessions or discipleship, se- discipleship sessions with prospective new believers is because there is such a huge misunderstanding between the meaning of baptism, the mode of baptism, and and so many that I have run into equate baptism with a salvation experience. I was baptized when I was nine years old, um, but I'm confused. I don't, I, I don't, I don't. I have this disconnect in my life. Like I don't, I don't, I, I don't really feel like I'm saved. But I was, ba- and they're confused about it. Right. Or the reverse. Like, yeah, I come from this church background where I was. I was baptized when I was two or yeah, it's basically, know, whatever, it's, and they think they're saved. It's they're the not. wet sinner's prayer. Right. It's a wet sinner's prayer. Like That's the danger uh, of it. Was there a time yeah. when you got wet and you were sincere? Well, you need to look back at that time and know that you were saved. You <laughs> right. know what I mean? Like that's what, that's what Presbyterians do or Catholics, and not that they're the same, my Presbyterian brethren, um, but it's the same thing people do with a sinner's prayer. Well, was there a time when you prayed this prayer and you were sincere? Oh, well, then you're saved. You just need to be assured that, that's your assurance of salvation that you prayed this prayer, you know, one time. People do people do the same thing with baptism because they, they do associate it with that. And and I do I agree, Derek. I, th- I think that a lot of Baptist pastors have not thought enough about being Baptist. I think that's part of the issue too, is we don't we don't really preach enough Baptist doctrine from the pulpit. Mm-hmm. Of me saying I totally believe that Presbyterians are in Christ, and I believe they're dead wrong about baptism and church government, and I will defend that from the Bible and with reason because I'm convictionally a Baptist, not because I grew up Baptist. Mm-hmm. You see what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I think I think there's a lot of guys that, uh, even what we've talked about in here of who's mm-hmm. even a candidate for baptism or how we do it, it's just, well, this is the way we've always done it. And it's like, right. okay, well, that's not really how we should be operating things. Yeah. Well, you know, and with discipleship, again, that kind of flows right into our, our topic of assimilation. I know we're running out of time, so we can kind of talk about assimilation, which is essentially um, bringing a new convert and um, um, incorporating them into our local fellowship. So, um, so we can maybe end on this question here. But um, how how are you in your local church setting remaining relevant to culture while also still holding to a biblical mandate of church membership? Um, I think there's a balance there. So, so what could you guys say to that? Remaining relevant to culture while still holding to a biblical mandate of church membership. So go a little bit more detail. When you say remaining um, culturally relevant, That's what I'm explain yeah. that a little bit deeper. Yes, yeah, so, so being culturally re- relevant is basically um, your church um, understands culture enough to where if you're trying to reach a, a new generation— you know, you're not stuck in a post-World War II traditionalism in your church context. If someone comes off the street, I understand that there's going to be a difference that they're going to experience among Christians um, morally and uh, convictionally in that sense. But, um, you know, when it comes to stylistically, when it comes to dress, when it comes to different things, you know, is someone, you know, from a housing development that's right behind your church, they come and visit your church one Sunday 
are they going to feel like they stick out like a sore thumb or are they going to feel like, okay, this is a place where I feel loved and I can be a part. Um, and then whenever that church membership takes place, um, you know, are, are they feeling like they're loved and a part? I hope that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, you can look at it. I mean, like, I think it was you that mentioned last week. Um, there's some churches that um, will accept homosexual members. Right. Right. Um, so that's not holding to biblical. That's too relevant. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's not holding yeah. to biblical mandates. But I, right. I would say for our church in particular, when, when I first got there, it was very traditional. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not going to call it high church, but everybody was dressed up and suit and ties and right. a lot of people were. And, um, but when I got there, I was like, that's not where we are. Right. That's, there's nobody up walking up and down Haywood roads wearing, you know, suit and ties. Now granted I'm at least wearing clothes. Like some aren't on Haywood road, but, um, <laughs> so, uh, but, but we, we've really set, uh, we've, our church has really embraced and all our people have mm-hmm. really embraced the idea as, of um, come as you are. So if someone come to your church in a pair of flip flops, and they stunk a little bit. Is my, that okay? Well, my, one of my deacons said yesterday he didn't stink, but um, <laughs> but no, I mean we we right. um, we've really um, we've really set a a tone of come as you are. Right. You're welcome here. Yeah. Our people are welcome. I mean, we've had multiple uh, homeless people uh, come in our church, um, and we've taken one of them out um, for lunch um, and learned from him, and uh, but. We've we've really tried to understand where we are, mm-hmm. um, and, and tried to facilitate that. Now our building plays against us in that. I mean, our yeah. building is very high church, big church. You know, mm-hmm. inside we're we're trying to de funeral home it. Right. Um, we're still we're still working on that. <laughs> but I mean it, that that plays against us, right? Because it right. looks very institutional. Sure, um, sure. And so we do play against that. Yeah, but and, uh, and we can agree our culture is anti-institutional. Absolutely, point. especially our um, generation. You know, as far as the uh, you know folks our age, thirties and, and under, and even more so, I think this emerging group that's coming out of high school now is they are super anti-institutional. So how do we reach them, but then still be biblical in how we? Um, conduct church life. Right? It's funny you say that because yeah. we had a discussion um, last week about changing the name, right? Church name, taking, okay. Taking Baptist out, sure. And uh, well, I mean, hear me out. You'll Play be proud place. of me for this. Um, I didn't bring that up actually. Oh, he's adjusting his microphone. Hang on. Yes, yeah, I, yeah, I didn't. Uh, I didn't bring that up. Somebody else did, and they said well, we think that maybe the people in our community are offended by Baptist. I said they're offended by the word church. They're not offended like Baptist. That I mean, maybe right. But here, they're not coming here. They're not going to the Methodist church. Right. Like, it's the word church. Yeah. Uh, that that is offensive to them. Right. Uh, so. Well, that's good. I think you explained well. So, so in your in your opinion, being culturally relevant is not changing the name. That that's not going to help anyone. I mean, that's not. I think. I mean, I get it. Yeah. I mean, I I understand. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think some churches they're they're more Baptist than Christian. Right. You know, and they don't know why they're Baptist. That goes to what you you're talking about. You know, Certainly. we got to have the Southern Baptist symbol on the sign. What is the Southern Baptist symbol? On the sign? I don't. Yeah. You know. Um, what even What even is it? Yeah, what is, symbol? I, I didn't know. It's a cross with a globe behind it. That is. I did learn that because I did. (laughs) Hey, I just learned some. Yeah. But anyway, we're going off the the rails here. But uh, yeah, yeah, that's it. So so I disagree with that. Okay, cool. Um, Disagree with um, that. If you want the Southern Baptist, everything you just said, he disagrees with. Yes. So. Just get ready to trash your No, I mean, he's. I'm a Baptist, so his church is autonomous and they can do whatever they want. We didn't change the name. They can be as wrong as they want. Um, so well, I mean, we've actually had that conversation in our church before about name. Yeah, where is Barberville? Stuff, but, huh, Barberville is over there where all the apple pla- trees it's are. It's a place in our hearts. Um, and and when, right we, once Jesus. we convert all of Waynesville, it will be renamed into Barberville. Nice. Um, so <laughs> that post meal. Um, domination. Yeah. So so for us, cultural relevance in that way is not really a consideration for us. Okay. Um, the way that we see it is, is you know, the the church is is its own sovereign nation, and so therefore it has its own culture the same way that another nation would have its own culture. Right. And so, uh, and this is also where you know Sunday morning we do not see Sunday morning as a time for uh, for 
evangelism. Okay. So there's obviously an invitation every week. Mm-hmm. We, we take the Lord's Supper weekly, and the command is, is we invite everyone to come to this table that is a believer in Jesus and that's right with their brother and sister in the Lord. And if you're not, if you're not, then you need to repent. Right. And so that you can come and be a part of what's so we give an invitation every week with a table. Right. Um, to invite people. So if there is an unbeliever, you know, that they know that. But we do not tailor our our corporate worship service for unbelievers or trying to assimilate culture right. outside of the church culture. So like for us, it's like the music we pick, the way that we dress, the way the building looks, all that kind of stuff. I'm not saying none of that stuff is totally Facebook live, microphones, you know. lights. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we, we do that. We have live stream and all that kind of stuff. Right. But, Worldly. But, but for instance, like we never live stream uh, the Lord's Supper at the end. We always cut that off because that's family time. That, okay. that's, a, that's a private thing for believers. We sure. don't do it with our meetings and things yeah. like that. But but like when we're planning our services and all that, the consideration of like what kind of people are going to be there or what they're going to let, that doesn't even really come into the conversation right. for us. Right. And that's not to say that we have some kind of style that doesn't apply to anything. Okay, mm-hmm. We sing hymns. We do congregational singing. We right. preach for 45 minutes. Uh, we have hymnals. Our building was built in 1964 and looks like it was built in 1964. Sure, sure. So it's it's not like we're trying to say that we're like, superior to any other church that does things sure. differently yeah. but just with our philosophy but of I'm ministry wrong. No. you know well but, but <laughs> the know question the question that we're asking is is if god is there like uh like what does god want to happen in the service sure sure yeah um which i'm not saying that in a derogatory way towards yeah. anybody obviously we all want to honor the lord with our services but i would say as far as a philosophy of ministry of mm-hmm. like, like you asked the question well if somebody came in and they were dressed a certain way or they smell better right. whatever how would the church receive that well what we found is, is is the more that we just focus on the ordinary means of grace in the service, the the less those become issues. So, right. like, if you look now, like, we're, like, one of the most multi-ethnic churches in our county. We've got every kind of social demographic. We've got people that dress different, people that are in, in all different kinds of life that's situations. Awesome. Yeah, that's great. But we didn't try to make manufacture any of that. We mm-hmm. just said, we're going to worship Jesus. If you want to worship Jesus, come worship Jesus with us. And all different kinds of people right. have come. Okay. And so that's kind of what we've seen is, is it, because we're basically, instead of us trying to uh, kind of uh, integrate part of their culture and part of our culture, we just say we're a totally different culture. Yep. And if that's not for you, that's okay because we're Christians here. But right. like if, if you if you want to be a part of of the the family of God, then like this is just how we do things in our family. So you guys aren't really uh, setting a, a, maybe even an un, unvoiced standard of dress you know, no. so you're not going to say to a guy, "Hey, man, you really need to be wearing slacks and a button up." Or no, so like, like, so like, so like, when we preach, we preach mm-hmm. in suits. I wear okay. that's the only time I wear a suit. Sure, sure. Is when I preach or a tie. Yeah, you know. All that. Yeah. Um, and and we do, and 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 there's a whole different conversation of kind of why we do that. Mm-hmm. But like, at the same time, after service, I'm sitting at lunch with people in t-shirts, people with button-up shirts, people with whatever. Um, Wonder. we're all eating different kinds of food. Like, like, there's just. I tell people, like, the only thing that we really need to have in common is the gospel. And, like, right. everything else can be totally different. And, like, we can have that in common. And by God's grace, he is he seems to be doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, we don't get in battles over, like, what kind of music are we singing or what the preaching style is or whatever. It's just more about, like, um, I, just, I just came here to tell God that I'm thankful for salvation and I love him and... And um, that's cool. I want to be encouraged by these other people, you know, and on a practical level, you know, how do we interact with culture? I think hospitality is something we've really emphasized Mm -hmm. of having people in our homes. Um, uh, We just started having meals after church every Sunday because nobody would leave. So we just told people to start bringing food. So that's just like a normal thing for us. So that's so that's a way that culturally, too, of like somebody might cook totally different food than me or their house might look different or my house might be different. Like I've got six kids. My house is crazy. But then I've got people in my church that are like, Hey, can I just show up? And it's like, sure. I mean, there might be laundry all over the floor or whatever, but yeah. you know, you can be here. So, um, I guess it's a little more organic as well. I would say. Well, I, yeah, yeah, that's good. And that's good to explain myself more. You may not believe me or not, but, um, it's not like us, we don't sit down and say, you know, we're going to do this. To, like, we're not going to wear suit and tie because of that. We, right. we, we haven't had this conversation. Right. Like that's not, 
I'm not Andy Stanley in that sense. Like it, it it's not a conversation that we've right. actually had. It's just the culture that we've built. Yeah. Um, now you can say we've been intentional, just like you've been intentional with certain things, like we eat after church and all that too. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I would say that we haven't, we haven't sit there and said, you know, now with the church, the name and, and that type of thing, we have right. you know, that conversation. Right. And I didn't even yeah. bring that up. So. Well, and for the record, I have never had a conversation about changing the name of Pole Creek in case there's any Pole Creekers. Okay. I have not, nor do I want to change the name. Are of Pole you Creek. sure? I no. promise, Adam Black. That, my successor. He's trying to get you in trouble already. I'm, I'm, waiting for, I'm waiting for that. somebody to get the good, like, nightclub church name, like Unicorn Church, where there's only one point and it's Jesus. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> see, like, I, I, could, I could totally, if I want to be a church planner, I could totally do Was that. Was it Beer um, and Jesus? Where's that? that? Jesus and beer? Theology on tap. Well, no, there's a, there is a church. It's somewhere in the state that it's Jesus and beer, and they meet in the brewery. And they yeah. drink beer? Yeah. Well, that church in California, they smoke weed before every service. There you go. Well, there's been people high, doing high that. theology. There's been churches in California doing that for a Listen, if we did that, we would pack the place out. I mean, let's just be honest. Yeah. No, we you, are. you need to have the... Uh, Anarchist that's a, that's a flash Satanist flea market right there in front of you. You're right. Yeah, what, what did you call that? Satan's yard sale? <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> well, that's what it is. The auditorium had one this, the auditorium Ooh. in the Haywood Road, they had one Saturday. And it was like, I wanted to go up Crazy. And I almost died the first time you know that. He said, our church is right across from Satan's yard sale. Yeah, I asked him for directions too. That's what he said. He's like, Go past Satan's yard sale. Wow. Well, well, Derek, do you want to uh, round us up on this uh, topic? For this week, so with assimilating folks, um, being culturally relevant and all the things we've said, yeah. I mean, we're not in West Asheville like uh, like Adam is, so mm-hmm. we're not having those same conversations that he is about the culture, right? And basically, we kind of have like a broad cross section of people that come into uh, Liberty. Um, we're not totally out in the sticks, like. Uh, maybe we're not a technically a rural church. We're kind of in between Asheville and, and, and Candler. So we kind of have a broad spectrum of people that come in. We have some Hispanic families. We have uh, uh, some African-American uh, families. We have uh, good old country folk, you know, from up on Pisgah Highway. And we have uh, business types. So kind of where we are and the people that are coming, are we already have that nucleus of diversity so it's not like we had to to try and and make any of those superficial changes to attract us it it was kind of baked in um but in terms of like people feeling comfortable um i mean i always preach in a in a shirt and tie Mm -hmm. coat is optional optional depending on how depending on how hot it it starts out with it (laughs) yeah yeah Yeah. (laughs) things get that's when it gets really good yeah (laughs) yeah that's that's how you know it's it's something i mean i'm i always wear a tie but maybe two other people in the church might have one on everybody else is real it's it's really dressed down low-key you talk (laughs) about people coming with flip-flops it happens right uh we have a thing called children's change where the kids come down and take up children's change and they they're collecting for missions and uh, my kids come down and they don't even have shoes on. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, I feel that. it's awesome. our worship experience is really relaxed in terms of that. And I think that kind of relieves maybe a lot of fear that some people might have, like not being dressed the right way right. or because that's sometimes uh, that's what a question I get when or, I invite someone to church. Well, what do y'all wear? Especially young people. Right. Yeah. yeah. And what I tell them is wear some. Yeah. Yeah. Mod- mod- modesty, I think, is biblical, but yeah. the particular style or article of clothing is not. You can't yeah. find that. I mean, Jesus' day, they're wearing robes. I thought it had to have buttons on it to be spiritual. <laughs> yeah. I'll tell you one of the greatest blessings that um, that we had recently was a, a young guy who came forward, um, and he was coming out of drug addiction, and uh, he was coming forward for salvation and um, had tears in his eyes, and he's wearing like a ripped up, like, Rebel flag T-shirt. I mean, he he was rough, but it did not matter at all what he looked like because the power of the Holy Spirit was in that moment, and his life was being changed. And everybody was just so focused on that mm-hmm. that the externals did not matter. So basically, my approach has been: look, if you have the preaching of the Word of God and you have the Spirit of God in that place, a lot of these external things do not matter because if they're having an encounter with God 
man, this other stuff's just going to be lost in the wind. Because that's really why people are there is to encounter the Lord. And if they feel that palpable and that personal experience, they're going to want to be a part of it. They're going to want to be assimilated into it. And so I think if you focus in on that in uh, having that encounter with God and and being strong with your with your preaching and and lifting up Christ and whether you you're doing traditional hymns which we do or southern gospel which we do or praise and worship we do all of it right because there's That's beauty good. in all of it and people enjoy all of it sure sure so we just try and grab as much of all that that we can and use it all in a bag of tricks cool. a bag of tools that we just try and put together into something that's going to reach one I like that. I like that. Well, I think that rounds us up for this week, our October 4th edition of the Four Horsemen podcast. Uh, make sure to go on Facebook and like our page and also subscribe to us on YouTube and Apple Podcasts or whatever other platform that you uh, listen to podcasts on. Um, we're going to be doing this weekly, so we hope that you'll continue to listen. We hope that you're encouraged, and I just pray that God uses you mightily in wherever He has you at this moment. God bless. You can continue the conversation online by visiting us on Facebook at facebook.com slash the number four horsemen. Don't forget to tell your friends and enemies about the podcast and be sure to subscribe and review. 